0: Good morning and welcome once again to In Focus. I'm John Sims and joining us this morning, Dr. Richard Idell, psychiatrist with UT Health Northeast, the University of Texas Health Science Center at Tyler, talking about an issue that just seems to be on everybody's front burner right now, the opioid crisis, the opioid epidemic. It kind of goes by both names and I think they're both pretty accurate at this stage. Good morning, Dr. Idell. Great to have you with us. We're looking for a very informative, very timely program today. Yeah, it's my
1: pleasure to be here.
0: Um, don't forget, InFocus is available online. Just go to ktbb.com slash InFocus. InFocus is uploaded to our website early in the morning, the day after the show airs. Just as kind of a scene-setter, Dr. Idell, you're a psychiatrist and the opioid situation, crisis, epidemic, whatever you want to call it, very broad-based. It can be approached from practically any angle, just based on the information I've been able to glean and doing a little bit of my own research. Where does psychiatry come into this picture?
1: Uh, Well, as you mentioned, the opioid epidemic really does appear to be a systemic issue um, at every level of medicine and in families and communities. And oftentimes you do see psychiatric issues uh, amongst people who have opioid addiction. It could be underlying depression, previous substance abuse disorders, um, or just poverty, psychosocial stress, leading to an increased likelihood of becoming addicted to opioid
0: medications. Okay, that's pretty much what I figured, and uh, thanks for kind of um, opening that door for us, clarifying that a little bit. We're looking at several different, different issues here, and um, how did this happen? How do we manage pain without creating a population of addicts, if we are indeed on the way to doing that? And uh, th- th- those are just really kind of the two basic building blocks that we're going to be talking about today. So let's start. How did we get here? Um, Not too long ago, we were hearing about things like uh, Oxycontin and Mm -hmm. uh, fentanyl. Of course, Prince died from a fentanyl overdose, Uh, things like that. We can go over some of the specific opioids and maybe make a distinction between opioids and opiates if you want to do that. But it's only been within the last—for me, within the last several months that this thing's really exploded. President Trump calling it a national crisis— uh, but it goes back a lot further than that. Right. Let's do a little bit of history.
1: Sure. Um, I think you can really trace this back at least 20 years. Um, you know, really to medical student education, doctor education. At that point, uh, there's a real emphasis on treating acute pain uh, very aggressively. So making sure that pain was well treated. In fact, it was uh, actually labeled the fifth vital sign. And to that end, you know, pharmaceutical companies were very aggressive in marketing new and stronger and, uh, and, in theory, better opiates to address the chronic pain that people are going through for, for various reasons. You know, veterans oftentimes will have uh, injuries sustained in battle or combat. And uh, chronic pain can arise from a whole host of reasons. It can be a consequence of cancer. It can be a, a back injury. Uh, and so while you had this, suppo- this chronic pain epidemic growing, you had also opioids being prescribed um, very aggressively, and doctors were not educated on the addictive nature of these drugs. And, you know, at the time, pharmaceutical companies were somewhat insistent that these drugs were not that addictive, that these could be safely prescribed, that people would use them for the appropriate amount of time, um, and then come off of them. But when we really look at the biology of how these drugs work, um, it's, it's not surprising that this sort of epidemic has developed and unfortunately, there just probably was not enough research at the time to really show how addictive these drugs could be. And doctors were not educated appropriately on how to, how to prescribe, and patients were not educated on how addictive they could be. And it can be, uh, even for people without any history of addiction, these are highly addictive drugs and up to a quarter of people will misuse them, uh, 8-9% to 9% will become just outright addicted to them. And it, so it's always um, a risk, and if you have a family history of addiction, even riskier.
0: Okay, and just to crunch a few numbers here, I have a few in front of me based on some uh, research that I did, I've been busy on the internet the last couple of days, um, by April of 2016, when uh, Congress passed a law that we're going to talk about a little bit later on that uh, basically took a lot of, if not all, of the teeth out of the Drug Enforcement Administration as far as opioids are concerned, uh, the opioid war, as it's term now, had claimed 200,000 lives. That's more than three times the number of U.S. military deaths in the Vietnam War. Uh, it's been reported that opio- uh, that the overdose deaths continue to rise and there is no end in sight. So just a lot, a lot of people are affected by this and if you listen to the news which i hope you do being a news person and uh just uh, keep up with what's going on there is a lot uh, there are things like lawsuits investigations people arguing one side or the other mm-hmm. it doesn't appear that there is any end in sight but at least today we can kind of lay some of the issues out and give people an idea how to deal with it we talked about overprescription. prescription uh, do you have any answers as to why doctors were over-prescribing these drugs? Was it just a common mentality in the medical community at that time? What they thought of maybe as erring on the side of caution, and it mm-hmm. turned out to be the exact opposite in a lot of cases.
1: Yes, I think it was sort of the education at the time that, and you know, these were doctors with good intentions, trying to pe- treat acute pain and to alleviate suffering, which is you know the primary job amongst physicians. And in doing so, um, there was an appreciation at the time of the long-term consequences of these drugs and the addictive nature. Um, but I think, yes, you know, the goal at that time was really to reduce acute pain. And we, what we do know is that if acute pain, so short-term pain, just having an injury that causes pain, um, if that is not adequately treated, it is more likely to turn into chronic pain. Um, there's changes that happen in the nervous system at the level of the spinal cord and the brain that can cause problems that could be could be resolved with acute treatments turn into long-term issues too mm-hmm. um, So it's there's this fine balance in adequately treating acute pain but not necessarily treating chronic pain with opiates,
0: okay you said opiates and uh, the show basically is about opioids good time to draw the distinction as we talk with dr richard idel this morning on in focus i'm john sims dr idel psychiatrist with ut health northeast talking about the opioid crisis opioid epidemic Uh, can you run down a few examples we mentioned a couple of them earlier in the show Uh, some of the opioids and some of the um, drugs that are more commonly known as opiates what's the distinction there? well
1: Essentially, these drugs, these names, are used interchangeably: opioids and opiates. It's that um, they have a similar mechanism of action in the body, and they are a very addictive class of medications. They work through this uh, mu opioid receptor in the body in some capacity, and that's what they all share in common. They're derived from opium or uh, synthetic versions of chemicals that are similar to opium, and. They you know, relieve pain very quickly, and they also act on reward centers in the brain and emotion centers that um, are associated with you know, just euphoria, feeling very good, and it has a very strong reinforcing nature, so people want to take them time and time again.
0: Okay. We are talking about uh, drugs like Oxycontin, uh, Oxycodone, commonly sold under the trade names Percocet and Oxycontin. We have Hydrocodone, also known as Vicodin, fentanyl, which we mentioned a little bit earlier on and uh, they resemble opiates, such as opium-derived morphine and heroin. Do morphine and heroin count as opioids or opiates? Is that part of the issue? Yeah,
1: I think um, you have essentially derivatives of those two drugs for the most part, and then synthetic offshoots, You know, drugs that have been chemically altered a little bit to be um, more lipophilic. And that means that these drugs go straight to the brain, to the areas where um, addiction is involved and also pain. So uh, as, time has gone on and chemistry has become more sophisticated, you get drugs like Oxycontin and Fentanyl, um, which are more lipophilic and stronger, and um, so good for relieving severe chronic pain if you have, say, some sort of intractable pain related to cancer, but also more addictive and potentially easier to overdose on because of the potency of these drugs. Mm -hmm. Um, But all under the broad spectrum of uh, opioids similar to morphine and opium.
0: Okay, and then we move into some of the really more troubling aspects of this. We have doctors who um, just thought they were doing the right thing, and I think this is a good time to make the point that there are people every day, everywhere on opioids or opiates who just take them like regular medication. They were correctly prescribed. They follow the prescription. They not only don't have any problems at all, But the opioids are working for them. We definitely want to include that angle. It's not like everybody who touches an opioid or an opiate is going to become an addict and become part of this huge problem. doesn't take away from the fact that we do have a serious crisis on our hands nationwide. And one of the things I picked up on as I was preparing for the show, corrupt doctors peddling drugs to the black market. That just kind of opens up a whole new uh, horror story.
1: Yeah, you know, I think in any any industry, there's going to be bad apples and bad seeds that um, essentially try to exploit other people for profit. And, you know, I think, unfortunately, in the medical, com- medical community, it's no different amongst pharmacies, certain pharmacists, certain doctors who have arrangements um, to get these drugs out there. But I think at this point, that um, this is very few and far between, you know, that unfortunately, the bulk of the addiction comes from opiates prescribed in the right context Ah. you know that um, in America we consume about 80 percent of the world's uh, synthetic opioids and supposedly 99 percent of the hydrocodone Um, so we're disproportionately using these drugs and um, you know it's a problem that started as I said about 20 years ago and I think most of it is coming from just prescriptions given without a lot of forethought without screening people for addiction or family history of addiction, um, and you know, just really trying to relieve acute pain at times for people that are in crisis.
0: Okay, uh, getting into some of the other aspects of this, and I don't know how much expertise you have on this, and uh, by all means, don't go beyond your area sure. of expertise, but it's something that we really do have to mention, reports of the powerful drug industry. Pouring tons of money into congressional war chests and then the passage of the April 2016 law, which basically took a lot, if not all, of the teeth out of the DEA's power to oversee prescribing opioids, use of opioids, etc. This came to light very recently when Pennsylvania Congressman Tom Marino Uh, step down as the potential drugs are because he was involved with that. He was one of the folks that was involved with getting this legislation passed, and I understand very few, if any, people in positions of power were complaining about it at the time, and then, you know, a year and a half later, we have this situation going on. Any comments, observations about that?
1: Sure. I think it's it's really, I would say, shameful behavior in a way that there's this uh, different approach to treating um, illicit drug dealers versus dealers who are doing it through corrupt ways through the conventional medical structure and that it all should be prosecuted in the same way and the DEA should be able to enforce the laws of the land. But I do think the flip side of this is that the problem is more systemic. It's not the rogue doctors and, um, and pharmacists that are complicit in black market trade, that this is really at the level of the, the emergency room, at the clinic, um, in the hospital patients that are being prescribed opiates for pain and then go on to become addicted due to lack of education for doctors, for the patients, for the families, lack of support for rehab services, for treatment services for families, and lack of ability for doctors to link people up with rehab services and treatment services as necessary and that it goes beyond uh, the black market
0: mm-hmm we also just at least for now want to briefly and maybe in more detail later on touch on lawsuits against the industry going on right now attorneys general investigating the industry a lot of that happening there's just so much going on as people really fight this battle without any clear picture at this point of where things are headed we don't know who the next drugs are is going to be right now the Opioid Prevention Act of 2017 I understand just from a quick online check um, is just kind of hanging in the balance right now. I think it's just part of this whole, the impression I get is it's part of this whole picture of people knowing that we have a problem and trying to figure out what can be done about it, which really brings us back to some of the things that you observe and some of the things that are being done in the local medical community as mm-hmm. far as this situation is concerned. Now, biological reasons for addictions, I believe we touched on that somewhat earlier in the show. Anything you can tell us to flesh that out, how that aspect of it works?
1: Sure. Um, you know, I think this, there may be this uh, misconception or the stigmatization of people addicted to opioids that it's just weak, being weak-willed or a choice or things like that. Which negates, in my mind, the biology that really how these, of how these drugs work, which is they go directly to the reward centers of the brain. They, so the opioids hit these mu opioids receptor, and then there's this flood of this chemical called dopamine, which is our motivation and reward chemical mm-hmm. in areas of the brain that are um, associated with reward. And so when you have this reward, a big reward associated with a chemical, other things start to be less rewarding day-to-day activities that typically the brain would get some sort of enjoyment out of or get a dopamine surge from, eventually it's it becomes only the chemical that you can get this reward from. And that doesn't matter if you've had a history of addiction or not. That's always a possibility and that's why I think we see about a quarter of people misuse these drugs. Um, and I think that's where the education comes in, and just knowing, hey, you overuse these drugs even if you don't have a history of addiction or anyone in the family,
0: um, it's still a risk. And Mm -hmm. It sounds like a lot of what we've been hearing for, uh, I've probably been hearing about it all my life, as long as I've been uh, aware of what's going on in the world. Uh, You can, and really do need to put it under the heading of substance abuse. It's kind of what we've been hearing about for years, cocaine, alcohol, things like that. It's Mm -hmm. just kind of another angle that's popped up and that has really blown up and is getting an awful lot of publicity right now. The word education, okay, Uh, You're a University of Texas facility, so that all fits right in very comfortably. What is being done right now, or at least being talked about, let's just say on the UT Health Northeast campus and within the other local health agencies that you network with as far as education is concerned?
1: Well, I think as you pointed out at the beginning, opioids were, opiates in general, being prescribed too commonly uh, for too many, too many pain conditions. And so just decreasing the total amount of prescriptions is part of that and really parsing out who needs these medications acutely and who does not. Um, so education is being done in that regard for residents and at the level of uh, medical schools, there's an increasing okay. education on um, how, you know, how addiction occurs and how to avoid over-prescription. And then the, you know, the other part of this is teaching patients um, alternative methods for controlling chronic pain. There are alternatives. It's very hard to unring that bell though once you've given someone opiates because the whole system becomes uh, sensitized to respond to opiates and it's harder to withdraw opiates because actual pain receptors and pain can actually, over time, those receptors become more sensitive as they get used to having this, this potent chemical that blocks pain. So it becomes harder and harder to get people off of opiates whereas if you start with alternative methods of pain control and there are a series of other drugs And certain antidepressants, certain medications for like gabapentin for neuropathic pain, duloxetine, that can be highly effective for controlling pain without causing addiction. And so teaching people this, things like meditation, exercise, Mm. acupuncture, alternative treatments that have been shown in the literature to work uh, for chronic pain, uh, I think is happening more and more and investigational approaches for treatment of pain as well.
0: Okay, as far as your personal involve, involvement, are these things that you see and that you're actively involved with in your day-to-day psychiatric practice?
1: Yes, um, it's a huge problem in the in the community here. Opioid addiction is an opiate addiction. And I think now we're actually seeing though, um, I'm having patients more often come to me saying that they can't get them anymore and now they're clinically depressed. You know, they're in an opiate withdrawal state and opiate withdrawal is extremely unpleasant. Nausea, uh, vomiting, uh, extreme pain at times, pain in the bones and the joints, um, you know, their hair is standing on end, their pupils may be dilated, and you see just extreme levels of discomfort, um, but also just depression that may occur due to just changes in the brain after chronic opiate use. And so oftentimes medicines like Cymbalta and other medicines that work through um usually through mechanisms that are associated with depression can be quite helpful in treating both the depression and the chronic pain um, in people with opioid addiction and chronic pain.
0: Uh, As far as success, are you um, having any success and can you kind of measure the success that you're having with this type of education that's uh, being conducted across the spectrum and that you're involved with in your own practice?
1: I think it's early at this point to We don't have research numbers, at least at at ET yet, in terms of um, what's being, you know, implemented right now and the results that we're getting. I think we will over time, but I do see the broad trend of people recognizing how dangerous these drugs can be and uh, being more educated about it and, and oftentimes wanting to find alternatives to opiates when they've been on them for some time, realizing that even though they haven't been abusing them per se, that... The chronic use, it's not working as well as it used to be. And essentially they're just staving off withdrawal as opposed to really treating any chronic pain at this point. And so those patients who are motivated actually do want to get off of them and can, you know, when we treat mm-hmm. the withdrawal symptoms.
0: All right, so kind of a mixed bag right now, but this, it's interesting that you're telling us this because when you read the news uh, and actually broadcast some of the stories, which I've done from uh, mostly from other sources on the air, or post them on the internet, Uh, basically what we're hearing now is about 95 to 100 percent bad, but uh, some of the stuff you're talking about is off the radar. There are people, individuals, individual families from what you're telling me that are beginning to understand what the problem is and making some positive moves.
1: Well, yes, and I think you're right that the vast majority of this it's really bad and it's people get in this cycle of going in, in and out of rehab and having a real really difficult time coming off of these drugs and as The government and other entities have regulated opiates more and more, and in the medical community too, people turn to heroin. About um, 80% of heroin users start with prescription opiates. That's the latest statistic. And um, so that's a huge problem. As uh, prescription opiates become less available in many parts of the country, people turn to heroin Mm. or what they think is heroin, which is oftentimes laced with things like fentanyl and carfentanil, which are lethal and overdose. Um, They're all mixed together, and uh, the difference being that carfentanil, most people kill them with a small dose because Mm -hmm. it's so potent.
0: Fentanyl is incredibly potent, from what I understand. Mm -hmm. It's just, uh, well, you know, the the Prince story is just really kind of the the, the poster child for that issue. Uh, You say that it's a big problem, the opioid epidemic in East Texas, compared to the rest of the country, uh, based on any numbers that you might have. And I don't know how many numbers you have on this right now. Is it uh, about the same? Is it worse than it is in other areas of the country?
1: Um, Well, I did speak with a a DEA agent who said it's as bad or worse, that it is a severe Problem, You know, we have a, a huge methamphetamine problem in East Texas as oh, well. Oh, yeah. Um, and, and in the hospital, we probably see more uh, methamphetamine addiction because oftentimes uh, people with methamphetamine addiction become psychotic and engage in disruptive behavior, criminal behavior. Whereas with opiates, yes, people are engaged in theft and things like that to fuel the addiction. But um, oftentimes are not coming into the hospital as much that until things are really advanced and late and they're very sick or have uh, complications from IV drug use over time if they're using heroin, uh, if they've transitioned from prescription opioids to heroin. So it's a huge problem in East Texas, and, um, you know, we're working towards trying to improve that.
0: Oh, okay. Dr. Richard Idell, psychiatrist with UT Health Northeast, our guest this morning on InFocus, talking about the opioid epidemic. I'm John Sims. Um, the impact on families, and I'm just taking an educated guess that it's very similar to the impact that something like this is going to have on families with any other substance abuse issue.
1: Correct. Yeah, I think it's really devastating. Um, it can be for families who are really caught, I mean, in, in most cases, caught off guard when um, any sort of addiction is involved. Uh, but this can be potentially fatal. You know, overdoses occur Um Quite often, as you as you mentioned from the statistics, and it's a it's a growing problem, it seems, and particularly as these other synthetic drugs and more potent drugs are mixed in with heroin, and um, you know people move away from prescription opiates or combine prescription opiates with uh, alcohol or benzodiazepines that can suppress respiratory drive and lead to death, hmm. and um, so that's a common problem. And it, for families, it can be extremely frustrating because it's sort of this, you know, feeling of powerlessness. Um, right. People are so caught in the throes of addiction that they lose track of every other part of their lives. Their goal is become their life becomes entirely revolved around getting the drug. At times, due to the way that these drugs act on the reward center, mm-hmm. and so I think it's important to know that oftentimes, you know, it, the key is getting into treatment, and it may take a few times going through the the system rehab. Um, you know, outpatient rehab, uh, counseling, you know, it's a very intensive process and there's a high failure rate.
0: Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, you talked about uh, some of the information that you passed along to us earlier before we went to air, uh, comorbidity with depression. Comorbidity is a clinical mm-hmm. term. It's a pretty easy term to understand. I'm wondering yeah. if we've possibly covered that already, if there was anything that you wanted to flesh out about that.
1: Well, I think, you know, it, it's important that most of the time, if someone wasn't depressed when they started uh, opiates and became addicted to them, somewhere along the line they probably did become that way through uh, chemical changes in the brain and through behaviors that have isolated them from mm-hmm. their families and friends and communities, and just the way that oftentimes their lives have turned from, uh, you know, being functional and, and, you know, and happy to just this life that is uh, completely devoid of any community support. So they may feel isolated, alone, and depressed. And I think it's important to treat the addiction, but also the what we call the comorbid or additional mental health issues that may be their anxiety, depression, trauma that may have happened in childhood that led someone to be more likely to seek comfort in opiates. And so if, if you don't treat the underlying causes psychologically, um, it's hard to imagine that the consequence is going to improve. That's not to say that that's happened to everyone with opiate addiction, but uh, particularly in younger people, you see a high percentage of people with early life trauma, abuse of some kind, or
0: mistreatment. Mm -hmm. As far as solutions, and that's really just such an important part of what we're about today, I picked up a story um, out of San Antonio this week about some clinical trials being conducted on non-addictive painkillers mm-hmm. and I guess that's really just kind of a snapshot of what's being done what's being researched the fact that you all that there are already treatments out there depending on the patient, of course, that uh, are not addictive and that do work, and even the alternative medicine mm-hmm. field, uh, which I uh, dabble in quite a bit myself on a personal level, meditation, um, herbal treatments, just a- anything along those lines. Those uh, have been shown to work in some cases. And, of course, again, getting back to what we said earlier, if the doctor prescribes the opioids or opiates um, accurately and you just follow the prescription, pretty good chance you're not gonna have any problems and your pain's gonna go away. It's
1: true, but I think it, that still the risk is underappreciated though, that that people should be aware that these can be, it can sl- very qu- slowly become a problem um, and people may not even realize it. They may just take a little bit extra or even take it as needed and then get an extra prescription and one more prescription. Um, but you're right, it can be taken safely and in the short term and, and effectively um in terms of looking towards the future there are clinical trials that are ongoing there are alternative drugs right now and then there's treatments such that have been shown to be effective and used at the va things like yoga and tai chi and meditation all these things actually do rewire the brain and that's what you need to do you have structural changes that occur uh, with addiction and with chronic pain for that matter so certain areas that are involved in processing pain they change and they are getting this big pain signal even if there's not a stimulus causing the pain and those practices can certainly change that Uh, other drugs that are being used now more for chronic pain one is uh, ketamine which is traditionally an anesthetic and it's being used now for depression and for chronic pain Um, there is a risk of abuse of that drug but it's much lower than uh, with opiates from what we found and it may help people Relieve their addictive tendencies more quickly.
0: Okay, we hear so much about what's being done with lawsuits and investigations and what's being done as far as getting a new drugs are and what the government is going to do about it. Those battles are going to be going on for quite some time. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, what I'm hearing from you today is that so much of this really needs to be handled on the local, the individual, the community level. People just kind of uh, taking the bull by the horns and dealing with the problems that are happening right there in their own everyday lives
1: yes i I do agree i think that the government legislation is is important but it's going to take time and uh, to really find a a good policy that is is easy to implement i think the onus is on the medical community um, and the community community members the family members and addressing this problem not stigmatizing people who are addicted to these Mm -hmm. drugs to actually thinking of this uh, these people not as criminals but as members of our community that need medical treatment because we do know that if opioid addiction is treated it is it can be treated yes the relapse rate is high yes it is extremely challenging and it takes someone very motivated to to get over this but it can be done and uh, i think the stigma oftentimes amongst both depression and opioid addiction is part of the problem
0: okay and here in east texas big problem as you mentioned earlier in the show and uh, do you feel as though the East Texas medical community is on top of this? That it's ready to help anybody who has this problem?
1: I, I think so. I see doctors, and you know, I've spoken with other doctors through the prescription monitoring program, which just gives us a quick readout. If we have, we can see with any patient the opiate prescriptions that have been prescribed. Coordinate with other doctors if there's any suspicion that drugs are being misused, and educate people better about the drugs and alternatives to the drugs and treatment if the addiction is becoming a problem and how to recognize if uh, opioids are having a negative influence on their lives. And um, so I think those sort of measures will have an impact.
0: All right. And as far as education, going out speaking to churches, uh, houses of worship, civic clubs, nonprofit organizations, schools, just making yourselves at UT Health Northeast, just as an example, available to talk to people and maybe give them another version of what we've been talking about today. That's important too, right?
1: I I think so. You know, I think you're absolutely right that uh, doctors in general who are uh, working on addressing this crisis need to get out there more and uh, spread just the information that could help prevent addiction or help people who are going
0: through it and i'm sure they can call ut health northeast if they want somebody to come and do kind of like what you're doing today absolutely okay you have to come out you bet a uh, great show very informative dr richard Idell with ut health northeast psychiatrist talking about the opioid epidemic the opioid crisis that we hear so much about our guest this morning on in focus thank you so much dr Idell. really appreciate it Uh, it's been a pleasure thanks for having me you bet dr richard idel our guest this morning i'm john sims thank you for joining us and we'll see you again next week on in focus your only local news radio this is ktbb tyler ktbb fm troop tyler longview and ktbb.com